this is Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. <laughs> Who are you, John? Sorry, I'm rusty. I've been away. My name's John Sonia. Okay, and my name's Griselda Murray-Brown, and we're both culture editors here at the FT. Uh, John, you've been on holiday for a very long time. I know. I tried to download the podcast from India, but it said it would take 36 hours to download because the internet was so <laughs> Not crap. even you are that dedicated a listener. I wasn't. So I listened to it when I got back and, yeah, very much enjoyed it. But, yeah, happy to be back. Good. Well, happy to have you back. How was your trip? Did really you, good. Um, did you find enlightenment? Yeah. Namaste. I'm, I'm a changed <laughs> man. Namaste. I went to find myself. Shanti, shanti. <laughs> I watched lots of... Um, bad films on the plane but I've been catching up very quickly since I've been back so what Griselda introduced what we're going to be talking about today. This week we are talking about the Oscar nominations which have just been announced and we're also going to be talking about the Academy and whether it's doing enough to tackle the diversity problem that it has. Is this the year of Oscars not quite so white? Yeah there have been three big films Moonlight, Fences and Hidden Figures which have prominent black actors in a couple of whom might win big awards. And black directors. Yep. So Are things changing? We will discuss all of that. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to the British artist Idris Khan. He's best known for his photographs, but he hates being labelled as a photographer. Okay, so with Griselda and I in the studio today is Raphael Abraham. He's a culture journalist at FT Weekend and writes a lot about film. Thanks for joining us, Raph. Thanks very much. Good to be here. And I thought we'd kickstart our discussion about the Oscars with La La Land, which has had a record equaling 14 nominations at the Oscars. It's a romantic comedy, and Griselda, you've got a clip we're going to hear. A romantic comedy and musical, we should say. Um, yeah, yeah that, we, that, that's quite important, actually. That, it's a musical. It's a musical. <laughs> it's definitely it's a, musical. a musical of sorts. So let's listen to a clip. This comes from early in the film. Uh, the Emma Stone character, Mia, and the Ryan Gosling character, Seb, are early in their courtship. She's an actor, he's a jazz musician, a pianist, and they're both sort of struggling-ish to make it in Hollywood. I got a call back. What? Come on. (laughs) For what? For a TV show. The one that I was telling you about earlier. The Dangerous Minds meets the OC? Yeah. Congratulations, that's incredible. I feel like I said negative stuff about it before. What? It's like Rebel Without a Cause, sort of. I got the bullets. Yes. You've never seen it. I've never seen it. Oh, my. You know it's playing at the Rialto. Really? Yes. You should, I mean, I'll, I'll, I, can, I can take you. Okay. You know, for research. For research? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Monday night, 10, 10 o'clock. Yeah, great. Okay. For research. So, Raph, let's, let's start with you. What, did you. what did you make of La La Land? I enjoyed it very much. I think it's a really wonderful piece of entertainment. I saw it back uh, at its sort of early screening at the Venice Film Festival and with a massive auditorium full of people. And there was a real expectation about what this film was going to be like because I think a lot of us absolutely loved Whiplash, Damon Chazelle's previous film. And yeah. There was a lot of expectation for this one. And um, it was a room of slightly jaded journalists and industry people. <laughs> and sort of from the big first opening number, everyone was absolutely swept up by it and uh, and it sort of erupted in applause at the end of the first scene which doesn't happen that often <laughs> so not, not amongst critics it's interesting anyway. you, you just mentioned expectations because I saw the film last night right so, <laughs> quite late to the game I suppose and when something is so trumped and you know record equaling number of nominations 
I was so disappointed by it. And I wonder if I would have had a different reaction had I gone in September when you went. Yeah, well, um, is, I mean, that's kind of part, part of why I mentioned that. Not because, oh, I saw it first, you know, but it's, uh, I think ooh. it's such a, <laughs> such a different way to see something when, yeah. you know, when the hype machine's been rolling for months and, you know, yeah. this thing is built up. If you now go and see it, you may, you know, you may come away like you, slightly disappointed. Yeah. Whereas I think it's a nice, light, frothy piece mm. of entertainment. Are you, are you a fan of musicals generally? I didn't have you down as a group. <laughs> yeah, well, you got me there. I'm generally not a fan of musicals. I remember, in fact, when this was first announced, it was touted as a musical that even sort of non-musical fans could enjoy, which, you know, sort of piqued my interest. And I, I think it does live up to that because I think it's, while it is a musical, it's not the sort of big whiz-bang Lloyd Webber type musical. You know, it's kind of got Thank more... God. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's got, got a certain amount of irony. The songs are quite funny and knowing, yeah. satirical. It's having a bit of a kind of jab at La La Land as well as celebrating Hollywood. And part, part of it is Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone have both been slightly criticised because they aren't the best singers, they aren't the best dancers. Mm. Um, that wasn't actually why I had a problem with the film at all. I actually found that aspect of it quite charming. And it yeah, was, I think the, the idea that quirky. they're kind of slightly amateurish and that yeah. you, the viewer, can relate to them not being singing in the rain style dancing you know this is not right. totally polished no these are not polished it, performances it ties them with their characters in the film doesn't absolutely. it absolutely i don't think this is not fred and ginger you know yeah. you're not expecting them to be the greatest singers and dancers you've ever heard uh it's much more like what woody allen did with everyone says i love you i think you know yeah where yeah. that was in maybe even a more extreme version where you know people were sort of uh singing off key and you know croaking <laughs> through songs it doesn't quite get to that level but i mean you know i also think that the Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone have such a terrific chemistry mm. that, and they just ladle on the charm that I found, you know, ultimately I was won over. But it definitely, I think, has its faults. It's not a perfect film. It's not a masterpiece in my book. I don't think it's the best film of the year, but it's um, it's hugely impressive and it's got some fantastic sequences. Griselda, what did you think? Did you like it? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with Raph. I thought the chemistry between Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling was was great. It was um, very believable and you felt totally invested in them as characters. And we won't give any spoilers away, but the, the end sequence is really kind of spectacular and interesting tonally, I think. You know, it's very charming and delightful, but I think it also has this edge of sort of tough realism. It's a film about ambition and success and sort of the cost of ambition, which I guess is similar to, to Whiplash, Damien Chazelle's previous film. Yeah, I think I think absolutely I agree with you. I think it's that's one of the best things about the film is it, it it's being sold by some as this you know, straightforward, romantic story. But actually, there are some, you know, real bumps along the way. And it does keep you guessing. I mean, it's obviously totally a very different film to Whiplash. I mean, Whiplash yeah, was, yeah. you know, Tough. a, a gruelling, <laughs> tense ride the whole way through. This is much more, you know, light and frothy. But it's it's got, you know, there's a pinch of salt here and there yeah. as well. Was, was there enough to keep you going throughout the whole film? Because the clip that's been doing the rounds at the FT well, everywhere, is the Saturday Night Live skit with Aziz Ansari, who is being interrogated by two cops, and it's a spoof, and um, basically they have some footage of him on a date, and he says, you know, pretty innocently, oh, I kind of found the middle of La La Land a bit boring. And, you know, so these two cops are kind of, like, absolutely killing him for why he thinks <laughs> that, how he could possibly think that. But and I, Ryan Gosling I, did not spend three months learning piano in order yeah. for you to come along. And <laughs> exactly, but I, I did tend to agree. I thought, like, yeah, the opening sequences were phenomenal and look beautiful and whoever is the colorist on that film should win an oscar because it's it an looks, amazing looking yeah. Yeah. yeah but um in the middle i just thought it just dragged and i don't know i totally 
zoned out. I absolutely for a long agree. Time I think it film. really sags in the middle. You know, it goes all mushy, a bit like one of my mm. cakes. It's you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's definitely not. It's not brilliant all the way through. I think he does pull it back towards the end. But I thought that that Saturday Night Live clip was hilarious, it's and it reminded funny. me of this old Seinfeld episode where Elaine, one of the characters, goes to see the English patient and doesn't go for it and then gets harangued by everyone around her and almost loses her job because she didn't dare not to like the English patient. And she actually actually starts off sort of fairly moderate, just saying, well, I don't think it's that great. And of course, by the end, she's like, I hate it. I hate it. And she's just screaming. And that's, I think that's often what happens with it. You know, so now I find myself sort of defending La La Land, whereas I felt a bit mixed about it. Maybe this has been looking into things in slightly too much detail, but the idea, so Ryan Gosling plays a character called Sebastian and he's kind of has this very romantic opinion of how he can like bring back jazz and, you know, make it kind of popular again. The sort and of then, jazz in the old tradition. Yeah. yeah. Jazz is, has a very, very strong black tradition. So do you find it slightly problematic that this role was played by blonde hair, blue eyed, or maybe he's not blue eyed, you know, Hollywood white man? Because that, that, has, been, I mean, that has been brought up by a lot of... It has been brought up critics. and I think... I think it's also been brought up particularly in the context of this year's Oscars, which is something that we're going to talk about later in the question of diversity and kind of non-white nominees. Obviously, there are more of them this year. I don't I don't think it's problematic in this film. I think, you know, the idea of a white jazz musician is not unthinkable. Yeah, um, I don't know what the demographic (laughs) nowadays of jazz musicians is, but it didn't sort of jar with me. I think I think when you look more broadly at the number of people of colour appearing in films and especially you know, the mm. nominations the last couple of years, then it's definitely problematic. Do you think Ryan Gosling for lead actor? Do you think uh, the fact he learned to play the piano, does that make him a shoe in? I mean, does that, does that kind of thing matter to you? Should an actor have to kind of... Well, I think, I think semi- in Damien Chazelle's previous film, Whiplash, uh, Miles Teller learned to play the dr- jazz drums, which to me is... Uh, Almost That's more impressive. Much more impressive. Yeah, he didn't yeah. win the Oscar yeah. for that. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I don't think Ryan. Piano, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I definitely can't. Yeah. But I don't think that alone will win him the Oscar. I think, um, I think, and I'd like to see Casey Affleck win I, yeah. the Best Actor Oscar. Let's let's talk yeah. about Manchester by the Sea. So, Kate, Casey Affleck is, of course, the the star of Manchester by the Sea. Uh, Lee, a Boston janitor. This is not to give anything away, but his brother dies at the start of the film, leaving leaving a son behind and it's this relationship between uncle and nephew really that that the film explores as well as lots of other complicated relationships and delves into into Casey Affleck's past by means of these very vivid flashbacks there's a tragic event that's happened which actually is sort of quite interestingly delayed we don't hear about it at the very front of the film and it's really about the kind of fallout of that that tragedy. Hmm. Um, before we before we discuss it, I know we've got lots of things to say. Should we have a listen to a clip? The Casey Affleck character Lee is with his nephew, who's played by Lucas Hedges, and they're on a boat with an old friend of of the brothers, now dead, and they're deciding what to do with the boat. But as they talk about it, it becomes clear that actually it's about what to do about the, the son who's been left behind and, and who should look after him. Things are a little bit up in the air. No, I, I can take care of it as far as the general maintenance is concerned, but that motor is going to go at some point. I'm taking care Th- of it. There's no allotment for a new motor. Unless, George, you know someone who wants to buy it. Wait a second, I'm not selling it. We're going to be in Boston anyway. What? Since when are we supposed to be in Boston? Just take it easy. Well, whatever you decide, it's going to bleed you dry just sitting here. We don't, we don't know exactly what we're doing. Well, you know, he, he can always stay with us if he wants to come up weekends. Do you want to be his guardian? Well... 
He doesn't we want to be my guardian. For Christ's sake, he's got four. We're trying to lose some kids, kids at this point. House? No, yeah. I, I, we're trying to work out the logistics. We're so I didn't know. Pretty good, but Jesus we, Christ, what we, we've always got a sofa for him George, anytime he wants. George, George, you know that, right? That's all right. He, I know. I know. He's that. welcome anytime. I understand. I, I know. Thank you. You can hear all those voices talking over each other, and these men really wrestling with things, but not quite saying what they're trying to say. There's a lot of sort of repression there, isn't there, Raph? Yeah, I think um, that clip really sort of exemplifies the the idiom of the film. You've got these tough-talking Massachusetts guys who are not used to talking about their feelings, dealing with their feelings, who are confronted with these sort of difficult, tragic events. And uh, especially Casey Affleck's character, Lee, who is clearly not someone used to talking about his feelings, and he's you know he's a guy who talks about beer and ball games and stuff like yeah, that. He's kind of an irritable loner, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, when we meet him, he's um, he's a very troubled, depressive character. Yeah, he's living this kind of ghost life as a janitor in the bottom of his building. He doesn't particularly seem to have any friends where he lives. He goes to bars, and women chat him up. He ignores them, and then he picks fights with men in this kind of mm. quasi-sexual kind of way. Yeah, he's just this sort of big ball of repression, isn't he? And he's even just the way he walks and moves and all his mannerisms, you mm. can just tell he's eaten up inside. And I think what, one of the brilliant things about the film is the way it very gradually strips away the layers of, of these defences that he's built up around him and you get to see this this terribly vulnerable sad man inside and it's it's i found it hugely touching there aren't that many films out there that deal so explicitly with kind of male repression and and kind of two two friends like text me after they'd seen the film saying how difficult they found it to watch this film which is quite Mm, you know, I've never kind of seen that reaction from any mates before. And I found it quite hard to watch as well at times. Yeah, I mean, I think I can relate to that, the kind of Catholic guilt and repression, if not the repressed masculinity, but I think <laughs> definitely that um, that sense of all that's unspoken. There's this incredibly tense scene between Michelle Williams, who's brilliant in this film, we should say. She's she doesn't have towards a the huge end of the film. role. She isn't in that many scenes. No, the performance is absolutely fantastic, but it... I think it's so much about that is the, is in the writing and Kenneth Lonergan I think to me is just an absolute genius he's a brilliant writer, writer. he's yeah. just a brilliant writer director I think he's one of the most underrated filmmakers of his generation and I'm really glad that he's getting recognition for this because it's so beautifully written Raph, you, you, you interviewed the director, didn't you? I did, yeah. Tell us what, um, what was he like in person what was your you know what was the main takeaway from the interview? He's um He's a very self-effacing um, man, as you might expect. Yeah. Uh, but he's um, a playwright. He well, he started as a playwright, and he's made three films to date. And he's been through a hell of a time in the film industry. Um, his second film, Margaret, which was an absolute masterpiece as well, just as good as Manchester by the Sea. And I urge everyone to go out there yeah, and see it. Yeah, we must see it. Especially because it was, it nearly didn't see the light of day. It was held up by Fox Searchlight, the studio, for five, six years. They didn't want to release it. He had got into terrible fights with them about the edit. So he had an absolutely shocking time with that. And it's great to see now his work being rewarded and recognised in this way. You're right. His writing is is just superb. He doesn't write a bad line. And we should also say that this film is very funny. I mean, there's a yes. real black humour. That... For sort of the saddest film of the year, it has maybe the most laugh-out-loud moments, I yeah. think. He's, and that's what's so brilliant. He just captures the way people talk in this... You know, in a very raw, real sort of way. The way that they communicate often is by sort of getting at each other. But then there's lovely moments where the dialogue just cuts out and you're left with with music. I mean, things like Handel's Messiah, which probably not the kind of music that the characters in the 
in the film would listen to, but somehow it sort of expresses something that they can't express. Yeah. It's used just kind of perfectly, I think. It is, yeah. Okay, so next up is Moonlight, which is a film I think we all loved. Really loved. <laughs> uh, is that your particular favourite? Yeah, favorite? for sure. Yeah. Of the three we're talking about today, Moonlight gets gold medal, Manchester by the Sea, and if I had to give bronze, it would go to La La Land. Or but a I tin don't. medal. Yeah, a tin, from yeah, you. yeah, a wooden spoon. But um, yeah, Moonlight, Ouch. I thought, was an absolutely beautiful film. And Griselda, are we going to hear a clip? This clip is from early in the film where the character Chiron, who's the the kind of central character of the film, is a boy. He's been bullied at school and he runs off. He's he's picked up by a guy who sort of becomes his mentor. And in this, in this section, it's the morning after, the mentor's bringing him back to his mother, played by Naomi Harris in this really um, excellent performance. What happened? Huh? What happened, Chiron? Why you didn't come home like you're supposed to? Huh? And who is you? Nobody. I found him yesterday. Found him in a hole on 15. Yeah, that one. Some boys chased him in the cut. He scared more than anything. He wouldn't tell me where he lived till this morning. Well, thanks for seeing to him. He usually can take care of himself. He good that way, but... Little man. It's a very beautiful film made by Barry Jenkins. And it's it's a film sort of consisting of three parts uh, where we watch this uh, young boy, Chiron, who lives in this low-income, crime-heavy uh, part of Miami. We see him grow up uh, in this difficult landscape and um, also try to come to terms with his sort of burgeoning sexuality through over the course of these three parts of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it is, in a sense, a kind of traditional coming-of-age story you have a sort of child yeah, teenager and adult and there's, there's three acts but at the same time it's really not traditional it's it feels very radical and very fresh i mean it's not it's not often that you see a kind of poor black gay coming of age story and one that's told quite in this way i think the camera work the lighting the music is used very kind of beautifully quite experimentally i mean it's quite different to thinking about manchester by the sea which is quite naturalistic yeah it's i mean absolutely it's a, it's sort of definitely more daring in its sort of unit yeah. use of cinematographic techniques and also in this this structure it uses of these sort of like a, almost like a three-act play and i believe it is built uh, based on a play yeah it's um, based on Terrell alvin mccraney's play uh, it's called in moonlight black boys look blue Right. I haven't seen it, but I'd love to. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to see, you know, how how it's been transformed into a, into a film because it doesn't feel like sometimes you have plays adapted into films and they, you know, they really seem stagey. And this seems quite the opposite, as you say. It's sort of very boldly cinematic, and three different actors play this character Chiron in three different parts of his life, and um, so we get to know him through three different performances and. It's the kind of film where nothing is really explained to you. And mm. 
these jumps from one period of his life to another are, are not filled in and we have to somehow reach around and try and see what we can glean about his character. And, and what's quite remarkable is his character does change in some respects quite a lot in the three different acts of this film. At the beginning he's obviously a very young boy and I think every um, viewer would totally sympathise with his situation. and He's, he's kind, kind of, of almost very, mute. Exactly, yeah. he's so sweet, you just want to kind of wrap him up in your arms and mm. like protect him. Yeah. And then by the final scene, he's kind of he's kind of dealing drugs by the end of the film. Mm. But what's quite remarkable is how Barry Jenkins, the director, manages to still make you kind of sympathise with his character. You know, he's developed into a less passive and more complex person, but that doesn't mean in any way you kind of care for this character any less. Mm. I always felt like actually I could see that little boy in this yeah. quite kind of beefed up, yeah. weightlifting, yeah. exactly. drug dealing yeah. man. And that pain of a child was, yeah. I mean, they, they bear kind of very little physical resemblance to each other, but somehow their mannerisms and their kind of awkwardness, there's something there that you see carrying through. I think we've all grown up watching a lot of films where things start that way and you sort of think, you know what trajectory this film's going to take. Exactly. It totally yeah. upsets exactly. those expectations. And yet, as you say, by the end, it, he's still a very touching figure and it's clear that things are complex and it hasn't worked things out. I think a scene which really exemplifies that is when he's at the diner towards the end and he takes out his kind of silver yeah. grill, grill. Yeah, grill and like puts it on the table and that kind of makes a really nice link with the boy you see at the beginning of the film. There's real kind of humanity in this film. This isn't a portrayal of black lives that are really bound, I mean they are bound up in poverty and there's injustice and, and all, all those kind of systemic problems but the film isn't really about those things. It's actually really about this one guy and his his relationships with his mother, with a friend, with kind of school people and, and kind of his loneliness as well as his relationships. Like we've just been saying, this this portrayal of growing up as a black man in America is very welcome, um, not only because it's not done too often in, you know, by Hollywood and also just following on from the Oscars So White kind yeah. of yeah. drama of like last year's Oscars. Now, yeah. Yeah. It's taken on kind of this extra meaning. And I think what's so refreshing about this film in particular is that it's not about race. It's not about exactly. black experience in the US in relation to whites. It's much more about sexuality and finding yourself and all mm. those things. And yet it takes place in this milieu. Yeah, I mean, is, there's almost no white people in the film. Exactly. There's yeah. what, it's barely a white face mm. in the film. And, mm. and I think especially after last year's Oscar So White controversy, there was this slightly unseemly scramble where a lot of um, studios were looking around to, to find, you know, what's going to be the big black film for next year. I think initially it was it just looked like tokenism. I think Moonlight is the genuine article. Mm. This is mm. this is a film that's nominated for Best Picture and, and all these awards not because it happens to be made by a black man, but because it, it's genuinely one of the very best films of the yeah. year. I mean, so. it's mm. a really I experimental... Agree. It's great that it's being celebrated and being celebrated for those reasons, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, the, the music in the film is stunning. The casting is amazing. Uh, it feels original the way it's narrated in three parts. But we should point yeah. out that Naomi Harris is also up for an award. and uh, mm. Yes, Amongst several, uh, three women, in fact, in the Best Supporting Actress character, three black women nominated in the Best Supporting Actress category, and uh, Ruth Nego nominated for Loving for, loving, for Best yeah. Actress as yeah. well. So the Academy has seemingly gone a long way to sort of make up for its failings the last couple of it years. It definitely has. I mean, it went two years without having a single non-white nominee in any of the acting categories. And I think this year it really it has actually tried to change things, both in in the nominations that have come up from the Academy, but also in the makeup of the Academy itself. They, they've invited new people this year, 
And I think the 683 new members, 46% of whom are women, 41% people of colour. So you can see that there is this attempt to kind of change the makeup of who the academy is. I think despite that, I mean, actually looking at the statistics, apparently 75% men before these new invitees and now 73. So it's not a kind of seismic shift, really. But I think there seems to be a kind of wake up and there's a a willingness to to do something. I think the willingness is there, not least because the president of the academy at the moment is a black woman, uh, Cheryl Boone Isaacs. So they they clearly are trying. But, you know, the academy is a bit like the Titanic or something. It's it's enormous (laughs) sort of unsinkable beast that you, you can't just turn around quickly you know and it's going to take many years to change the demographic especially because it keeps getting older um, as yeah, people live longer they don't really leave do they they no. sort of just have to die off yeah <laughs> okay well thank you Raf for joining us and see you soon absolute pleasure thank you so John who's the lunch with the FT interview this week so where were you on June the 24th do you remember on June the 24th, I was driving to a wedding in Edinburgh. I do remember, yes. And you probably remember that day, right? Because it was the day it was announced that um, Britain voted for Brexit. I do remember that, yeah. That rings a bell. So, yeah, we're never going to forget that day, are we? And so, lunch is with Daniel Hanan, who is the Eurosceptic Tory MP, who has pretty much made it his life's work to get Britain out of the EU. Since the age of 19, he's fought for what he calls British independence, and he's really kind of been campaigning for this for years and years and years and years. So he should be feeling quite smug right now. Well, yeah, we'll find out. And it was done by Henry Mance. <laughs> right, he's one of the top Lunch with the FT interviewers. He's known for drinking a lot at his lunches, is that right? Yeah, so he had a £580 bottle of wine with Richard Desmond. He nice. had... Henry had six pints, a bottle of wine and two glasses of port with Nigel Farage. It's probably worth saying that alcohol was shared between them. Let's find out if this was as boozy an occasion. Hi. Hey, it's Ron from uh, the FT in London. So how was lunch with Daniel Hanan and where did he take you? So we, we met in Brussels, um, not far, although a little distance from his um, office in the European Parliament. Hanan's been there for ages. He's been there since 1999 as an MEP. Um, and this is kind of the belly of the beast for him, the the organisation that he, he kind of loves to hate and that he's rallied the Conservative Party against. So which restaurant did you go to? We went to a, um, a small little place called La Canonville, um, which is sort of in a chic part of Brussels. Not, not really what you'd associate with Brussels, kind of um, Art Deco and Art Nouveau houses, nice boutiques, um, and a tiny little restaurant with uh, eight tables. Was it another boozy one for you? Um, it, 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 so we just um, we just had a Supreme Court decision uh, this morning. So um, actually. Uh, Hanan said he he had a lot of work to do and, and didn't have time to drink, although he did have plenty of time to chat. So we were there for two and a half hours, actually. So um, <laughs> so, so not um, my liver got away uh, pretty much got free this time. Oh, good. Well done. And um, was, he, so was he a happy man? Was he gleaming in his kind of Brexit victory? The thing that struck me is um, the unshakable belief. Hanan is someone who, who has changed his position on on say whether we should stay members of the single market, whether the EU should expand to the east. And yet he's always got an answer. And so um, I put to him some of the, the questions around um, 
Theresa May's Brexit plan. He's more liberal on immigration than other people. Yeah, one of the interesting things we discussed is he's got lots of ambitions for what Britain should be, but he's he's probably going to walk away from politics in a couple of years. His confidence and his um, sense of self is, is is really unshakable. So that was, that was sort of interesting to test. And did he have any other new ideas that he floated? So he, he's written lots of books with lots of ideas, but one of the things I thought was interesting is he, he's a guy who who doesn't really believe in bringing immigration down. He thinks you know, free trade, free movement of people is is a relatively good thing. But he did say, we've got to do something about refugees. We can't allow this kind of huge spread of humanity. It's going to be a massive issue for Western countries over the next 50 years. So so we talked a bit about what might replace the, the current refugee system. And I think one of the interesting things is that he's someone who's been ahead of the curve on lots of ideas. It will be interesting to see whether he's ahead of the curve on this. Fantastic. Looking forward to the piece and see you soon. Thanks. Now we're going to hear from Idris Khan, the British photographer who, as Griselda mentioned earlier, actually hates being called a photographer. Yeah, that's right. His photographs look actually more like charcoal drawings. What he does is he takes lots and lots of photographs and then he layers these multiple images on top of each other. So what you have is a kind of amalgamation of many images in one. And he's done this with lots of different things, with books, including actually the Quran. He was raised a Muslim near Birmingham. Um, his his father is a practicing Muslim and he took his dad's Quran and he photographed every single page of it and then he sort of took all of these pages and put them together into this quite beautiful and kind of quite mysterious text. Yeah, religion crops up in a lot of his work but as we're soon going to hear, like he's not actually himself religious, is he? No, he's not practising, no. But I think um, Islam is definitely something that informs all of his work. And he recently made a memorial to the fallen soldiers of the UAE. It's in Abu Dhabi and it's very near the mosque there. He's in other places as well. He has a show on the Whitworth in Manchester at the moment. And he's about to open a solo show in Walsall, which is the town where he grew up at the new art gallery there. And it opens on the 3rd of February. Yeah, he's very much on the art world radar right now. And here he is in the FT studio when he came in to talk to us. I think photography is quite a a fast medium. All of us take thousands of pictures, you know. I mean, I've got two kids and I think my iCloud account's got around 65,000 photographs, you know. I probably only have about 10 pictures of myself growing up, whereas my kids now have a document of every single day of their life. And I find that fascinating. So that's that speed, that element of speed. I was never very good at drawing. I was a straight C student. <laughs> I got a D for A-level art, and photography was this way of like almost using a tool to create a conceptual idea. I was at the Royal College between 2002 and four, and I was surrounded by a lot of very smart people. In the first year there, I, I, I didn't quite know what I wanted to achieve as an artist or a photographer. Being introduced to people like Nietzsche and philosophers and psychoanalysts and, and great writers, Susan Sontag, Roland Barthes, Freud, it sort of was the first time I sort of opened my mind up to that kind of philosophy. It's really evident in those, those works that I made where I started to layer up books The technique was to re-photograph pages and pages of books, so literally starting from page one and all the way to the end of the book and using every single one of those pages sandwiched into an image. What you get in the end is 
all the words being eradicated, leaving lines, and then this huge black gutter in the center. It was very important for the viewer to stand in front of those images and feel like they were falling into them. It's almost about trying to sort of capture the power of the book in its totality, for the viewer to stand there and be transported somewhere else. With this layering technique, I could, I could create an image that looked like a charcoal drawing or a, or a painting. And, and when you look at a photograph in the newspaper or, or you know, now how many images are online, we don't actually think about the actual materiality of the photograph. We think about where that photograph's taking us to. I wanted to bring it back to the surface. You really see the time unfolding in front of your face. You see the time of the creation of it. Thinking about how many pages were layered, thinking about how many photographs were taken at that moment. The process of, um, of creating the work, I find it quite, in a way, spiritual, you know. Um, it comes back to sort of the way when I, how I was brought up. I was brought up in Warsaw, just outside of Birmingham. My father was born in Lucknow, and he, after partition, he went to Karachi and Pakistan, and then um, he moved in the early 60s to Cardiff and met my mother, who was Welsh, and had four kids and then settled in, in Birmingham. And he was a surgeon, and he was a practicing Muslim, and my mother converted to Islam to marry him. He tried very hard as part of our upbringing to be raised as Muslims, to understand the Quran, to speak Arabic and to try and speak Urdu, which failed um, <laughs> because somehow, you know, it was very difficult to be in the U UK at that time and especially in, in Warsaw, being being white, not not brown and going to the mosque and being the sort of outsider of, of that environment. And my mother not speaking Urdu, so she was with us all the time. My father, so busy as a surgeon, was never at home. But I suppose returning to something like a daily practice, the Quran is supposed to be read like that. You know, you read a page a week, you keep returning to the same page. And so there has to be something within that, that why I create the work that I make now. I think about sort of this daily ritual, this returning to something every day. And I think, you know, as in and some of those great artists like... Rothko, like Ad Reinhardt, like Agnes Martin, they really use their work as a practice, as a religious experience. In my upbringing, my house was not an artistic house at all. My mother played the piano around the house. We had that. She loved music. We weren't definitely not surrounded by paintings at all in the house. In fact, they were kind of blank walls. I was so fortunate for someone to, to see my work at the degree show. You know, Charles Saatchi brought the work at that time and I suddenly had to learn very quickly of, of what the art world was like and understanding how to price your work and understanding what the market is and the value of the art. Being a non-practicing Muslim in, in a world at the moment where Islam is a massive focus for the media and and in general there's a level of confusion around it as a religion. I made a piece of work in 2004 where I layered every single page of the Quran on top of each other. So it was I think about 2,000 pages that were, were layered up and I remember making that photograph thinking okay I'm not a political artist in any way 
it was after 9-11. It was, you know, it was my father's Quran. So I grabbed his Quran and, and I photographed every page and I laid it up thinking about this book and the power of this book and especially the way that it can be in a way misread. I've sort of made this picture where it contains all the power and of the words that were contained in it. The layer of faith that I have in, in my work, I think it's, it's not evident, I don't think, throughout the entire practice, but it is, and I, I keep going back to it. You know, I made, a, I made a piece in 2010 called Seven Times, which was uh, 144 steel cubes on the floor. Sandblast into each cube was the daily prayer. And, you know, that was a very tricky time for me. My, I lost my mother that year, and I also lost uh, my first baby through miscarriage. So there was art that sort of was born out of grief. It was almost making a sort of mini memorial in a gallery space. The footprint of these, all these 144 steel cubes was actually the footprint of the Kaaba in Mecca, where Muslims circle. And so I created this sculpture where the viewer was pushed around in circular motion around this, this artwork. They could interact with it. Religion's not really part of, of our daily life at home. Annie and my wife was born Jewish and she grew up doing all of the holidays and, and things like that, but I don't think it was necessarily a very religious house that she grew up in. But it's not something that we are trying to give to our kids. I want them to know about their heritage and I think they will through the art that I make. We do all the Jewish holidays with them so they get to go to the synagogue and see that side of things and our wedding was uh, an interesting <laughs> an interesting one. We had a, a fake rabbi and a fake mullah, my father and his godfather <laughs> and he sort of taught everyone about what it was like married under Jewish law and then my father about what it was like to be married under Islamic law. And so it made for a quite an interesting day and a very spiritual day, and, and it was nice to bring those, uh, those cultures together. You can read Raf's interview with the director of La La Land, Damien Chazelle, and you can also read his interview with Kenneth Lonergan, who directed Manchester by the Sea. They're both at ft.com slash film. If that's not enough film directors, an interview with Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, is going to be published in FT Weekend magazine on February the 11th. Next week, we have an interview with the Turkish author Elif Shafak. Everything else is produced by Chika Ayres. We've been Griselda Mari Brown and John Sonia. And our music is composed and produced by Fatum. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter or you can email us at everythingelseatft.com. And you can subscribe to Everything Else at all the usual places, including iTunes, as well as at ft.com slash everything else. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.